When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. The dream is made real! Ricky Hatton rocks the world! How do you like it? How do you like it? Well, fight fans, today I'm delighted to be joined by one of the most world-famous master of ceremonies. I'm delighted to welcome Thomas Triber onto this episode. Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to me today. Sean, it's my honour. Thank you very much for having me. So, today we're going to be talking about your journey through not just the sport of boxing, but in life in general as well, and how, how you got to this position that you're in, and People in the UK know you quite well for doing a lot of, obviously, the shows through various promoters. You're currently doing a lot for uh, Frank Warren and BT Sport, and it's it's obviously great to see you on the telly and getting the work and being over here and coming to and fro between America and the UK. But it's going to be great to really talk to you about you know, your life journey and where it all began for you. So my first question to you, Thomas, would be, where did this all begin for you, your, your interest in the sport of boxing? Well, my interest started in just wanting to get into broadcasting somehow. It really wasn't just boxing. I knew from a very young age I wanted to be in radio or television. I just wasn't sure which type of format. And when I was finishing high school at 17 years of age, um, I was hosting our talent shows and doing everything I could behind a microphone. And a good friend of mine became a professional boxer. Him and his brother were boxers. And his older brother became a boxer. And I just got the idea of wanting to um, get involved in boxing somehow. And I asked his brother if there was any chance that I could be a ring announcer for one of you know the boxing events. And he spoke to the local promoter where I live. And the promoter gave me an opportunity to uh, do the event. And after that event, I did his next event. And it just basically grew from there. So it was just 
luck of having a, a friend in a, a, who was a boxer and in the boxing business and having an interest in broadcasting and ring announcing just sounded like something I wanted to try. I never thought I'd be doing it 30 years later because that was 30 years ago. So uh, very fortunate that it's turned into a career for me. What were your first experiences before boxing of, of trying out broadcasting? Were there any like things you'd do you know, on your own, maybe in your bedroom, like practicing how to, how to deliver lines in a certain way? Yeah, I mean, I was actually like probably about nine, ten years old, and I used to turn the volume off whatever sport I was watching. Baseball was one of them I used to love to turn the volume off and pretend to be the announcer or introducing the players up, up to bat and, and stuff like that. So just always had that interest in doing something like that and uh, just loved. Uh, I was more of a pro wrestling fan as a young boy growing up. And it was just kind of, you know, boxing was just an opportunity for me to get inside of a ring. So it must be something that, like, you was... People say they're born to do certain things, and I kind of feel like from the experiences you've already talked about so early on in your life, like, it was one of them things where, you know, like you said, you just knew you wanted to do this. You knew you wanted to be a part of this in some way, shape, or form, and... You know, I'm I'm myself, I was one of them that used to sit and commentate on, you know, football or, or wrestling or even the sport of boxing when I was younger. I used to be one of them people as well. And it's like, I used to enjoy doing that. But then, did you, did you ever envisage that, you know, you'd actually be able to transition yourself into that? Because I know we all have our dreams when we're children and we all want to be something and yeah. go somewhere. But did you, you know, honestly, genuinely believe that you would be able to push your way into that position? You know, I never thought of, you know, ring announcing as far as traveling the world or, or being on television doing it. Honestly, when I first started doing ring announcing, it was just, I just wanted to try it. I just wanted to do it. It sounded like something fun. Um, as I said, I was a big wrestling fan, so I was already doing things in the high school hallway, introducing Hulk Hogan. You know, I was just always doing stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I had hopes, but I really didn't think that much about it. It was just about wanting to just get an opportunity to try it and just see where it would go. And I just stuck with it. I just never quit doing it. And, you know, that's the only way to uh, learn a craft is just to, to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. So what was the what was the nerves like before that very first show that you did? Then you know, obviously you've been in you've been in your bedroom or you've practiced it in your house and you you're ready for an event and obviously you've got to get yourself in a certain mind frame and, and a certain tone of voice to be able to deliver the lines yeah. that you want to deliver. Uh, what what was it like for you the first time you did that? Oh yeah, I was very nervous. You know, just like anyone getting in front of a big crowd and audience and and being behind the microphone. Um, but at the same time, I, I, this was what I wanted to do, you know. And as I would start my announcements for the night, the nerves would go away, you know. But certainly before I would step inside the ring, you could feel that heart beating through your tuxedo jacket, you know. And, um, but the more I did it, the more comfortable I got, you know, doing it. Were there any instances uh, early on where you know, maybe you you kind of fluff your lines a little bit or you mispronounced a name or a, an area or a town where the, the fighters or the individuals were from? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, made those rookie mistakes and uh, and so forth. But I quickly learned that preparation and show prep was the key 
to not making mistakes. So the more time that I took to prepare uh, for the events, I realized that the less mistakes I would make. So um, I tried to learn from whatever would happen, whether it would be introducing the wrong winner or, um, you know, uh, forgetting my lines or things like that. I realized, okay, look, I need to take as much time as possible to, to prepare for these events because those eliminate those silly mistakes. And, um, you know, that's what the true professionals do. They don't just take a bout sheet and step inside the ring and just, you know, wing it. You know, every, everybody needs, you know, you want to talk to the fighters, make sure you get the right pronunciations of their hometowns, names, their nicknames, their trunk colors. Uh, and especially when you move into the realm of being on television, you really want to eliminate any silly mistakes. So obviously we, we, we're talking about boxing here predominantly, but I know that's not all you, you've ever been involved in. So when you mentioned your, your early days and your first few shows that you did, were when did it start to cross over into other events and other sports? Well, when I started ring announcing, the first thing I did was boxing. And then opportunities started to come my way to work in professional wrestling as well uh, on a local level where I grew up. As soon as I started ring announcing boxing, I said, you know what? I want to get in the professional wrestling business. Mm -hmm. So I started going to wrestling shows and bringing a business card. And eventually that opportunity came my way to start working some lower level professional wrestling events. Um, and because I was such a big wrestling fan, I also had aspirations of being a professional wrestler. I mean, this was something that I wanted to do as well. So as I started to get opportunities to work in professional wrestling, I started asking, how can I become a wrestler? And within about six months of ring announcing wrestling, I was actually in the ring wearing wow. tights wrestling and had wonderful opportunities doing that uh, throughout the Midwest. I grew up in the Chicago area, and eventually I ended up having an opportunity to wrestle for World Championship Wrestling in 1993. I was only 19 years old and had the opportunity to wrestle Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, Ravishing Rick Rude, Flying Brian Pillman, uh, guys that I grew up watching, I was actually in the ring with, and I never imagined that. Uh, you asked me earlier about, did, you know, did you ever envision it could really happen? That I didn't, you know, and that was really a surreal uh, opportunity for me. But I knew ring announcing was what I really wanted to pursue. Uh, I didn't really feel like wrestling was a long-term venture for me but it was an opportunity that was there for me to try i did it loved it but i just really pursued being behind the microphone wow that's that's a great that's a great story and, and i don't know if many people you know over here in the uk know that about yourself about the fact that you actually got involved in world championship wrestling which is you know yeah. for a lot of wrestling fans over here you know the the whole monday night wars is an absolutely huge deal and the guys like steve austin and stunning steve austin obviously as he was known back then uh in wcw right. and obviously flying brian and you know there's, there's a lot of great names uh, and it was all territories back in the day before it became more taken over by obviously WWF at the time and then WCW. So that must have yeah. been that must have been pretty surreal for you to to be donning the tights and running the ropes and 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 doing the types of things that people don't really see. You know, we we see the entertainment value and the package that they deliver to us today, but you don't really see the hard graft that goes on behind closed doors to be able to you know facilitate actually getting in the ring and and choreographing a match. So you know, going back to that part yeah. of your life, what what was that like for you doing all that? Was that 
really that must have been really surreal for you that it really was um i start i, I started bodybuilding when i was about 15 years old i started lifting weights and i had goals of competing in a bodybuilding competition so I, I start bodybuilding at about 15, 17. I get my first opportunity to ring an ounce. At 19, uh, I competed in a bodybuilding competition. I won the Teenage Mr. Illinois uh, bodybuilding competition. And that was right when I was just, you know, getting in, in the ring wrestling. So it was kind of a, a, a natural fit for me to get in the ring because I was doing the bodybuilding or at that time. And, but I, when I started doing it throughout the Midwest, wrestling in front of 50 to 100 people sometimes. I never thought that I was going to get an opportunity to actually be on television wrestling, you know, big name wrestlers that I, you know, grew up watching some of them. Um, it was just a very lucky opportunity for me. I was wrestling on a show in St. Louis, Missouri, and there were some scouts there from World Championship Wrestling that were looking for what they call enhancement talent or jobbers, the guys that come in and, and lose. And they said, hey, we, we like your look. We think you, you, know, you wrestle very well. Uh, would you like to come to Georgia and wrestle on, on some of our TV tapings? And I jumped at the opportunity. And uh, it was quite surreal to be lacing up my boots and be looking over at Ric Flair you know, next to me. And uh, you, know, you name it, it was, it was really an incredible opportunity. But um, I, I knew deep down that announcing was really where I wanted to go you know, for my future. So just a quick question back on that again. Who did you actually share the ring with? Who did you Who did you essentially job to? Well, uh, the tag team, the Hollywood Blondes, yeah. which was stunning Steve Austin and flying Brian Pillman. Uh, you can find that match on YouTube. Uh, I was wrestled as Tommy Tana, by the way. T-A-N-N-A, Tommy Tana was my, my jobber name. And uh, I also wrestled Ravishing Rick Rude. Uh, in a tag team match as well. Uh, there was a tag team called the Awesome Kongs. Uh, they had crossed over from world-class championship wrestling in Texas over to WCW at that time. They were just starting out. They were called dark matches. Yeah. So I was working them in their dark matches. They were managed by Harley Race. Um, and uh, so took a beating from those guys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were about almost, you know 350 pounds each. I uh, got squashed on those pretty badly, uh, but I loved it, man. I mean, it was it was it was a it was like a childhood dream of mine, you know, to to actually uh, be in a ring and, and wrestling these guys. And you know, from age you know ten or eleven, I watched every WrestleMania. I, I watched everything I could on television with with professional wrestling. So, uh, but. But it was like one of those things where I, I knew deep down that announcing was what I where where I really wanted to be and what I really wanted to do. So moving forward from from that experience, then and, and obviously you knowing what you wanted to do, then how did you start to facilitate that? Well, you know, I, I, I stopped wrestling after only a couple of years, and in 1995. I, got, I started ring announcing in 1991. In 1995, I got my first opportunity to work in national televised event on ESPN. And it was that opportunity right there that really, really put me on the map as a ring announcer, not just a local ring announcer, but now being on national television. So I did about five events on ESPN2. It was called ESPN The Deuce at the time. And I took that footage 
and started sending it around to all the, the top promoters that I could, one of which was top-ranked boxing out of Las Vegas. And in 1996, I got a call from them to start doing some ESPN shows for them, uh, one of which was actually Floyd Mayweather Jr.'s second professional fight. Um, it was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the main event was Johnny Tapia. And then Bob Arum had three fighters he just signed out of the Olympics, David Diaz, Eric Morrell, and Floyd Mayweather. That was our televised undercard. And then the main event was Tapia. And, you know, getting an opportunity to now start working for top rank boxing, which, you know, is, you know, a big time boxing promotional company. I knew that that was a big opportunity for me. So in 1996, I packed my bags and I moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. And about a year after living in Las Vegas, there was a, a boxing series that started on Fox Sports Net. And uh, I knew the right people, made, made a call, and ended up landing a contract to be the exclusive ring announcer for boxing on Fox Sports Net in 1997. And it was really then that I was able to now be a full-time ring announcer because we were doing two, sometimes three events a month. And it was, a, you know, it was my dream come true. That was my, my big break, if you will. And that is what really you know, started to put me on the map as a uh, recognized ring announcer uh, on television. So if you don't mind sharing with us, Thomas, like what was it like in terms of being financially compensated at that stage when you're trying to make a name for yourself, trying to put yourself onto a platform where people recognize you as the, uh, as the guy, as the master of ceremonies for that particular promotion or that particular brand. But in them early days, what was it like being financially compensated for a show? Well, early on, it was really, it was very difficult. Um, when I started ring announcing in 1991, my first payday, I think it was $50. You know, that was like my pay. And then eventually it was up to 100 and 150. And, you know, it started, you know, to grow. But there were many times that I would drive to events, sometimes three, four or five hours and make just enough money to pay for my gas, a sandwich, and maybe, you know, sleep at a truck stop. To, to just make it home in time and couldn't afford a hotel room. So, I mean, I really, and I took every gig that I could. And that's what I always tell any aspiring ring announcer is take every gig you can get and get that experience because that's the most valuable uh, thing you, you, you need to have because when you're working these big events, you need to be comfortable. You need, you need to have that experience behind you. So, but financially it was very lean, you know, for a long, long time worked you know, every job that I could in between my ring announcing work. And the difficult thing is you can't really commit to those nine to five Monday through Friday jobs if you've got to start traveling. And if you've got to leave town on a Wednesday to do a Friday gig, you know, not a lot of jobs are that accommodating. So I took jobs that were flexible, you know, to help me keep keep my head above water financially. But thankfully, once I started, you know, getting steady work on television, uh, you know, the money improved drastically at that point. So you mentioned, obviously, you made that move to Las Vegas, uh, moving from mm -hmm. where you was based at the time. Um, people probably don't know from the UK that there's a huge distance between going from one state to the next state than what there is in the yeah. UK because it's such a smaller country. So for you, that must have been hours and hours away to go from your hometown to Las Vegas and pick up your life and move that. What was What was that transition like for you? It was scary because I had never, you know, moved away from home before. I never lived away from home. So, 
being all the way in Nevada from Indiana, you know, that's about a 24 hour car ride. So it's not like you can just jump in your car on the weekend and, and go home and, you know, have dinner with mom and dad, you know? So, uh, but I was a guy who was on a mission. I was following my dreams. I, I knew this was what I wanted to do. I knew this is where I wanted to be. And, um, but it was, it was, you know, difficult at times, but you know, I was, I was fortunate that moving there opened a lot of opportunities I would not have gotten had I stayed in the Chicago area, you know, where I grew up and where I was living. So let's talk about them early days, then working under top rank and moving over to Las Vegas to do that. You mentioned obviously Floyd Mayweather Jr. Uh, announcing on his second professional fight. We all know what he's gone on yeah. to do in the sport now, but going back to the early days of seeing some of these fighters, you know, coming into coming into fruition really and starting to make names for themselves, were there any particular other fighters that you could see yourself that you could see, you know, I'm, they're going to go all the way to the top? Were there any particular ones that you'd, you'd look at when at a show and you'd go, you know, I can see this guy going all the very way to the top? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were, um, you know, several fighters, you know, in the in the late 90s that like when I was on that Fox series, they had brought in um, the promotional company was called America Presents. And the gentleman who ran it was Dan Goosen, uh, a legendary yeah. uh, promoter um, and uh, a great guy. And I owe him a lot for giving me that opportunity with America Presents. But he was signing a lot of fighters, uh, young fighters, a lot of hopeful fighters. Um, out of the Olympics. He was doing everything he could to create a good stable for this company and for the TV we had with Fox. So yeah, there were, there were several that I would, I would see here and there. There was a fighter named David Reed, who was a uh, Olympic gold medalist um, that he had signed. He was in the 96 Olympics and David went on to win a world title. And unfortunately his career didn't go as far as, as he was hoping. Um, but you know, he was a, he was a fighter that I, I recognized as, you know, wow, this guy can go somewhere. And of course, Eric Morrell became a world champion. David Diaz, who was from my hometown of Chicago, he became a world champion. And, you know, someone might say, well, you know, those Olympic fighters like Diaz, Morrell, and, and these guys are easy to pinpoint as future world champions. But as you know, Sean, that doesn't always mean you're going to become a world champion just True. because you had a great amateur career. We've seen many amateur fighters, standout amateurs that never make it to that high level. Uh, so, but yeah, that, and you know, that's one of the exciting things about being a ring announcer is as long as I have is seeing fighters grow Tyson Fury. I did his pro debut in, in England in, in 2008 in Nottingham on the Carl Frotch, John Pascal undercard. And, you know, you just never know, you know, you see someone with like the physical potential and, and the amateur pedigree that theory had, but you never truly know how far, you know, they're going to go, but what a career he's had. So going back to the late nineties and early two thousands of your ring announcing career, there were some absolutely amazing fights that took place. Some genuine, genuine legendary nights. Were there any in particular that stand out in your mind as the 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 one of the best fights or the best fight you was ever privy to be able to see? Wow! So you're talking about between like 1997 and 2000 range. Probably. 
Probably yeah. even even up to 2002, because I know there's one particular fight that happened there, uh, which was, for me, one of the best fights, if not the best fight of all time. Uh, Gatti Ward, uh, round nine in particular, oh, that was yeah. um, that was one of my favourites. But you also had uh, Barrera Morales. But I'm I'm talking more so in yeah. in your in your aspect of, of what you were doing when you was live at the shows. Were there any particular fights, even if they're not as maybe mainstream as as what maybe people automatically think of when they think of a fight is there any particular fights that you could name where you could honestly say you, you watched that fight from ringside and you was like wow you was in awe of what these two warriors were doing in the ring yeah and, and you remember diego corrales casa mayor i yep. mean that that was that was that was a great series of fights between those guys as well um you know that that's tough for me to say exactly um i mean i there, for me, things that really stood out for me were my, my first opportunities to be part. You know, I was doing a lot of undercards for HBO, Showtime, working under Jimmy Lennon, working under Michael Buffer. So, you know, those opportunities for me were golden just to be ringside at such high profile, you know, fights and events. Um, but uh, Bernard Hopkins uh, had an opportunity to do some of his fights that were uh, very exciting fights. Sugar Shane Mosley. Mm-hmm. Uh, early in when he was a world champion, I got to do one of his fights on HBO. Where actually um, was on HBO doing that one. Um, but gosh, you put me on the spot there, Sean. I'm trying to think of, you know, a really you know great fight or, or something that really stands out to me. But there was a guy named Terry Ray uh, out of Indiana. He fought a guy named Kenny Keene, who was I believe uh, I believe out of Nebraska, and it was an ESPN show, and it would have been in the late. 90s and it was just a, a war a bloodbath of a fight and i remember just sitting there in awe of, of these two guys just never stop punching each other for the entire 10 or 12 rounds and i think that was the first time i had ever seen two fighters like that so bloodied just going back and forth like that round after round after round in person at ringside even though i had been ring announcing for you know six seven maybe eight years i remember sitting there and after every round just be like wow you know that was that was terrific so uh, not a world title fight maybe not fighters that every fan out there would would recognize but terry ray versus kenny Keane was it was a really uh, great fight so when you when you was getting right into the swing of your ring announcing career, so what we're talking early two thousands now, you're looking at what, what about ten years, ten years in in the in the ring announcing game. Uh, what was it mm-hmm. like uh, around the community of other ring announcers? Because I don't know what the experiences are like of of maybe dealing yeah. with the likes of the Jimmy Lennon Juniors and the Michael Buffers of the world. The you know the guys that had been in there before you and had already been well established for quite a long time were at the top of the game. Uh, what was it like for for you as an individual going in there and and basically becoming a sponge and you know soaking up everything they had to offer in terms of advice and experience? And was it was it a nice environment to get into, or was there a lot of competitiveness about vying for a certain top spot to get maybe a top fight on the card? Yeah, you know, before the internet and before MMA and before all the you know bare knuckle fighting or MMA boxing and pro wrestling were you know pretty much your only avenues to ring announce. There wasn't as much opportunity and as far as like being on television there wasn't the internet and all this streaming stuff mm-hmm. like that it was very difficult you know to get on television because if it wasn't hbo showtime or espn or, or maybe fox as they came along there really wasn't 
it was very competitive. There was, you know, uh, only a handful of guys actually doing it and making a living at it or doing it on a steady basis. But as far as working with Michael Buffer or Jimmy Lennon Jr., those I looked at those as golden opportunities to really analyze how they were even outside the ring as well as inside the ring. And, and just like you said, be a sponge and just try and learn as much as I as I could. I knew how valuable those opportunities were. So, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really just, you know, tried to, to learn as much as I can, I could and get as much experience as I could, uh, especially, but it was very competitive. Every ring announcer has their own catchphrase that they're remembered by or they're known for. Most The most famous, obviously, being Michael Buffer's Let's Get Ready to Rumble. But how how difficult was it for, for you to come up with your own unique style and, and make yourself different from the rest of them that were already out there? That's a good point, Sean. I mean, you never want to go out there and, and be impersonating anyone. And even though I paid attention to other ring announcers, I also never wanted to pay too much attention because I never wanted to go out there and start mimicking what they're doing. I mean, it's tough because you are doing the same job. So there's going to be some similarities to what you're doing or maybe what you have to say. But at the same time, you never want to go out there and just impersonate anyone. You want to kind of have your own verbiage on how you say things or deliver things. Uh, Because there's really no right or wrong way to do it as long as you're giving the right information. Um, So I did make a conscious effort to not go out there and and try to mimic anyone. Uh, But, yeah, coming up with that line, like, let's get ready to rumble. I mean, there'll there'll probably never be a line as popular as that from a ring announcer in the sport of combat sports or professional boxing. Um, But you definitely want to have your own style. So going back to sort of early to mid-2000s now, you're, you're at a point where your career is starting to really pick up some steam in terms of the events that you've been becoming involved in and probably a lot of the, uh, a lot of the cards that, you, that you're on. Are there any particular ones, from the, again, from the top of your head, from memory, that stand out in terms of you know, a quality card top to bottom where you know, maybe there's four or five 50-50 fights and you, know, you just get the odd one where you think maybe that's a little bit of a, a learning fight for that particular individual. Because I know there were, early, were a lot of cards during that period of time where you look at that now and, and you know, as, as a boxing fan, I absolutely, you know, I'm dying to see that level of quality top to bottom on, on a card. And I don't feel, you know, that we yeah. do get enough of that in this current climate. But going back to that period of time for you, you know, were there any particular yeah. cards that stood out that you were a part of, that you were ring announcing on where you thought, you know, this was uh, an absolutely quality card top to bottom? Yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate to be, you know, working for, you know, America Presents at the time and and Top Rank and, you know, some of these, you know, big, big companies. And uh, I mean, honestly, I mean, of course, you have those lopsided fights where, you know, the the fighters learning or, you know, didn't have much of an amateur career. So they can't put him in there with a a guy who's got, you know, 20 fights or anything like that. But um, yeah. that's a tough question. I mean, I, I, I mean, there was quite a few shows that I did where from the beginning to the end, you know, they were all good quality fights, but there's always going to be some lopsided fights. It seems like that's kind of the nature of the business at times, depending on where 
the promotion is is putting a fighter at that time in their career um but as far as you know televised fights go um you know there's plenty of fox shows that i did where our opener to the end were great fights in terms of traveling the world then something you mentioned earlier on in the conversation it's given you an opportunity to do that uh, what are your early memories and early experiences of being able to go around to different countries and travel outside of of the usa and go to all these different events what was the first one uh, and what's what's been your favorite one as well well my very first one sean was in around the year 2000 i want to say and it was vasily Giroff. Uh, and I got to travel to Almaty, Kazakhstan, of all places. I, never, you know, I never thought that I would ever go, you know, to Kazakhstan, and that was an incredible experience. It was a very long journey. I was living in Las Vegas at the time, and I remember I had to travel to San Francisco, then San Francisco to Germany, then Germany to Almaty, Kazakhstan, and it was my first taste of real travel and being tired and worn out. Um, but just working in a different country, it was a really incredible, you know, opportunity for me. And I just wanted, that's probably one of the biggest honors as a ring announcer to be brought to a different country. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted more and more of it. Uh, and then thankfully, uh, other opportunities start to come my way. And in 2008, December of 2008, was when I ultimately made my, my debut in the UK uh, doing the Carl Frotch John Pascal fight, Trent FM Arena, Nottingham. And then, you know, since that point right there over the last, you know, 11, 12 years, I have, you know, done countless trips, you know, to the UK. And the fight fans there are just phenomenal. Um, I just really cherish, you know, all the opportunities I've had there. But I've also worked in Japan. Um, I've worked in uh, the Dominican Republic, um, Mexico, Canada. Um, you know, uh, so I've, I've been fortunate to, you know, get an opportunity to work quite a bit internationally. Has there ever been any particular shows that you've been to where it's been probably the, one of the worst hostile crowds or environments that you've, you've been in? Cause you've been to many countries and you've been to many yeah. shows. Uh, but again, is the one that stands out where you've been to outside of the USA, where it's like, you know, you're remembering that you're not in your own country anymore. You're in a completely different country. Yeah. Compl- sometimes the rules completely different as well. Uh, <laughs> is, is there any? Is there any particular yeah. ones that, that stick out for you there where you think, oh God, I remember that. It was terrible. To, it was a terrible environment. Well, I've done some in Mexico where things can get quite rowdy. Uh, where if they're not happy with the decision, it's pretty common to have you know bottles flying around or you know cups of beer and and stuff like that. So. Um, I, I would say there, you know, and the security wasn't quite what it should have been. Uh, there's been a few events I've worked in Mexico where, uh, and no disrespect to Mexico, uh, you know, a great country and mm-hmm. tremendous fighters have come from there. But, wow, it can get hostile there. I also did um, a show in Puerto Rico where a very similar uh, scenario where the fans were not happy with the decision and that's when you got to, you know, start looking around and maybe get out of the ring as quickly as you can. I was full of beer one time. I mean, I got hit by, you know, two or three beers and my tuxedo was just full of beer, um, you know, from the fans' displeasure as they were throwing things. 
So that probably leads me nicely on to uh, my next question then. When you talk about decisions, you talk about how that can really rile up the, the people around the crowd, maybe even the corners, the fighter themselves. Uh, judging and judging scorecards is, is a hot topic and it always has been. And I think it will probably always will be in the sport of boxing. Um, I'm sure you've probably come across some cards where you've looked at it and you've had to read that decision out and maybe you've seen that fight and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not a judge, but that just doesn't seem right. And you have to read that yeah. announcement out knowing knowing the repercussions of what that's going to cause. What What's that experience been like for you? It, it's, you know, it's kind of like a guilty pleasure as a ring announcer to know that you're going to be the one relaying the information that is going to be shocking, you know, to, to some people. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I kind of enjoy it, you know, to a degree. It, it, but at the same time, uh, being a fight fan and, you know, I never want to see a fighter lose when he really should have got the win. I mean, you, you never, you know, yeah. you never want to see that. So in, in that respect, I'm, I'm never, you know, happy about the situation, but uh, it, it does happen. It does happen. And I always say, don't kill the messenger. It wasn't my <laughs> fault. I'm just really, because I've had fight fans literally start getting angry at me you know what? What are you talking about? You know, hey, I'm not the judge. I'm just the ring announcer. I'm just relaying the scores or, you know, announcing the decision. So it does happen. But, you know, at the same time, I think that's what makes boxing unique. And that's what makes it, you know, sometimes, um, you know, exciting. So before I go on a bit further into your career and, and up to sort of the point where you're at at the moment, You've obviously been to the UK many, many times now. You've done many, many shows. You've mentioned yeah. the Carl Froch Jean Pascal uh, world title fight, which was Carl Froch's coming out party for for a lot of us UK fight fans. Seeing him win that WBC yeah. world title uh, on that particular night great was uh, a great fight. Yeah, brilliant fight. Um, but in terms of of sort of where where you was at at that particular time of your career, ring announcing, and you started to get these bigger fights, you started to get the calls from from different places around the world. Did you sort of get a sense then at that time that, you know, maybe, you know, I'm going to be the guy for uh, certain promoters going forward? Because we know how you can get, you know, exclusive deals with certain promoters where you will be the guy. They will bring you over and they will have you on that show and you'll be the one that does all the ring announcing for for that. And you'll obviously get paid uh, handsomely to do that, of course. But, you know, in terms of of where where you was at at that point in your career, did you start to get a sense that, you know, people are starting to respect me for what I do and the craft that I've brought to the table? Well, this was uh, 2008 when I got the call, December of 2008. I was actually called only a few days before the fight. Uh, I'm not sure of all the details of why it was a last minute call, uh, but I think they were going to use Jimmy Lennon Jr. And, and maybe something had, had fallen through. Uh, but I was delighted, you know, to get the phone call. And honestly, I never even thought about going to England. I, I never thought of working in England. I knew of all, you know, the many great fighters that had come from England, Ricky Hatton, of course, and uh, Prince Dasim Ahmed. And I, and I saw the fan followings that they had not only in the UK, but in the United States. I, I always knew it was a very um, strong boxing culture in the UK, but I never imagined that I would ever go there. So when I got this phone call, it was Hennessy Sports, uh, Mick Hennessy, uh, who still promotes uh, yeah. there in England. It was his company that hired me. And when I went, I thought it was just going to be, you know, a one-shot deal, bringing in, you know, me for just, just this world title fight. 
And after the show, uh, I was asked if I'd like to come back the following month. And I said, absolutely. And after that one, uh, I sat down with Mick Hennessy and he said, we'd love to have you uh, be our steady guy because we are doing monthly shows on ITV. We were on ITV at the time. And it was, you know, very exciting for me to know that not only was I gaining, you know, some visibility in the United States as a ring announcer, but now to be working steadily in a different country was a, you know, tremendous opportunity and quite an honor. So um, as a ring announcer, you just never know what people are planning or, or and so forth. So you just go along with the ride and you just hope it lasts as long as you can. As, so, as it, you know, as long as it does, yeah. So obviously, boxing's the, the the predominant sport that you are known for. But what other what other crossover sports have you you've been a part of? Other combat sports or, or any other events that you've done since you've started to pick up that that notoriety for for being a great ring announcer? Well, appreciate that. Uh, you know, MMA. Uh, we talked we talked about professional wrestling, of course. I've done kickboxing uh, events. Um, and outside combat sports, I've, I've also been involved in uh, doing some boat racing events many, many years ago, uh, which was really a nice opportunity for me to uh, do something I had never done before. I was actually an interviewer with the uh, boat racing uh, competitors. So when you work behind the microphone, you want to do as much as you can. You want to be as versatile as possible. I worked in radio at a country radio station. Uh, as an on-air personality and all of that experience uh you know is what's going to make you a better broadcaster or a better better announcer so any experience you can get in front of a camera or behind a microphone you know take those opportunities because it's only going to make you it's only going to make you better so let's move on now to, to sort of where we are at the moment in the past couple of years and i suppose the, the last 18 months in particular, I think, is something I'd like to touch on with yourself because that's been, you know, quite a horrific time for, for the world with a global pandemic, that, which I don't think any of us would have expected that we'd ever live to see something like this, to be honest with you. You think about the Spanish flu the pandemic in 1918 and you, you think it's just part of history. You never actually think to yourself, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to live through something like this. But we have and we've all managed to cope some way or another. But for somebody like yourself who, who relies... Uh, heavily upon the fact that you know you go to a lot of these shows and you're being called up to do a lot of this stuff how how did that global pandemic then start to impact on you not just as an individual but obviously for for the work as well yeah it no one saw this coming uh you know and it's been very difficult because uh, uh traveling from the united states you have to do the mandatory quarantines you have to do the mandatory covid testing so it's been much more challenging where before, let's say we have an event on a Saturday, I get on a plane on Wednesday evening, I land early Thursday morning in London, back home Sunday. But because of this pandemic, my first, tri- my first trip out there in August, um, I had to do a 14-day mandatory quarantine before I was able to even leave my hotel room. Wow. You know, that, that was very, I've never been in a situation like that before. And then because of our schedule uh, with Frank Warren's Queensberry, we were doing shows every two weeks. So I could not travel home between those events. It was just impossible for me to travel home and then come back because I would have to do the 14-day quarantine all over again. 
So I was actually gone for two months away from home, um, August, September, um, and maybe even into, into early October, wow. my first trip over. And uh, I'm, I'm married. I have a stepdaughter. And, you know, my wife, she's an angel for supporting me. Uh, she's been great about the whole thing. But that's, you know, those, those are challenges when you're yeah. away from home for extensive periods of time. And then my, my next trip over to the UK, that one uh, was about six weeks. And then my third trip back, I was there a month. And now my last trip, I was only there two weeks. So thankfully, the quarantine times have, you know, gone down, which has allowed me to be able to, to go home in between events. But it has it was very, very challenging. And then I'm working outside the ring where I'm normally inside the ring. So that's you know you feel a bit like a fish out of water as a ring announcer when you're used to being inside of the ring um so there's been things you you know i've had to adapt to but i will say that i'm just so thankful that i'm working uh, i know there's a lot of other ring announcers or mcs that have not been as fortunate and i just hope that everybody can get back working on a steady basis and that this pandemic can you know, go completely away, hopefully sometime soon. So that must have been, must have been quite difficult for you being away, like you said, from home for all them different periods of time. And, and obviously you've started to become more accustomed to being here over here in the UK. And, and you know, you mentioned yeah. to me earlier uh, how you've, you know, you visited certain places and you've obviously had the opportunity to sort of enjoy some of the cultures of what it's like in, in our country. Um, but going going forward now, you know, as things start to ease up a little bit, especially over here in the UK, more shows are being announced. It's likely that you're going to be back here a, a lot more often over the course yes. of the next uh, six, seven months of the rest of 2021. Um, but I want to, I want to, talk about like what lies ahead for you really because you mentioned earlier uh this year is an absolute milestone is it this year 30 years in the sport you mentioned 30 years sean wow. yes sir i started in 1991 and uh never imagined that i would be doing it you know all these years later but uh, i've been very blessed so have you got any other ambitions now that you're really solidified in what you do and you're one of the best at what you do is there any other ambitions that you have as, as an individual that you want to take forward because you mentioned obviously being in broadcasting doing small little bits of work that you mentioned earlier on about being an on-air personality and there's there's is yeah. even being the role of an interviewer as well is there any other bits of broadcasting work that actually you think to yourself you know that's something i'd like to do as my career progresses well, I'm always open, you know, to other opportunities. Um, I've always wanted to be a game show host. I've always loved to, you know, I've, I've always had an interest in, in doing something around those lines. But truth be told, I really love my job. I really love, I, I, it, it's a passion and I love it. And when you have a passion for something, it's not even a job. You know, it's something that, that I live for. And... I've been so focused on just this trade that I really don't think about anything else, but I'm always open to other opportunities behind the microphone, but it, it's difficult when you're, when, when we are busy and you're, you know, you're very limited. I've had to turn down, you know, some offers to do some other things throughout the years, just because you're just not available, you know, to, to do it. But most certainly um, I, I would love, you know, opportunities to do hosting type stuff uh, down the road. 
So we mentioned one particular individual earlier, and it was Tyson Fury, someone that you've mentioned, and obviously you've had the opportunity to see quite a lot of. And you've seen a hell of a lot of fighters over the years. And I'm going to put you right on the spot once more and and say, could you give me maybe a handful of fighters uh, that you've seen and you've been privy to be able to be ringside for, and you can say that these are some of the best fighters of a generation? Mm. Well, um, I, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to, like I said, to ring announce an early Floyd Mayweather fight. Obviously, you know, the, the, his name will be synonymous in the world of boxing uh, forever. Uh, Carl Frampton, uh, I've been, had the honor of, you know, doing some of his fights, although now he's he's retired, it seems, um, as far as uh, a UK fighter goes. Um, and uh, gosh, you know. Bernard Hopkins, you know, phenomenal fighter. Roy Jones Jr., um, you know, I've been I've been very you know thankful to be ringside and get to see some of these fighters in person. Uh, Johnny Tapia, the late Johnny Tapia, of course, um, and you know all the, all the great fighters that that fight for Frank Warren's company. He's had you know so many uh, great fighters on our shows. So uh, yeah, quite a few. It must be. It must be. You know, a great job to be a fan of the sport and be, to be able to be a part of the sport as well. And I, I get a thrill out of being able to speak to these guys that are around it. So um, I assume you must have the same sort of thrill of being able to be around these guys that are going on to be genuine stars and having the opportunity to, you know, to actually mingle and have conversations with them. Is is there any yeah. any of them in particular where you've actually been able to build, you know, quite solid relationships with off the back of, you know, you being a part of the sport. Yeah. I mean, I don't do too much socializing when I do these events. I'm usually, I'm there to do my job and I I don't really socialize too much, but you know, I did Tyson Fury's first 10, 12 fights. I mean, you know, spent a lot of time with him and his family uh, at, at the hotels in the lobbies and, you know, having nice conversation. So uh, you know, I couldn't be more happy to see where Tyson Fury is at, you know, at this time in his career. Um, but yeah, there's been fighters throughout the years that, you know, you get to know on a personal level, David Diaz, former world champion from, from my hometown of, of Chicago. Um, and one fighter that I'm very happy for who, uh, won the flyweight world title on one of our last events, Showtime, Sonny Edwards, very nice, uh, young guy. I'm super excited for him. Uh, to see where where he's going to go now with his career. So that's definitely one of the perks of doing this job is you get a little personal time and one-on-one time with some of the the greatest fighters uh, in the world. So a couple of more questions then. And the first question is regarding the change in the way the sport is at the moment. There has been a lot of emphasis of crossover fights happening over the past four to five years in particular. It's not unbeknown to the sport. They've happened for many, many years. Muhammad Ali, Antonio Aoki. There's loads of them that have happened. There's loads of them that have happened over the years. But more so with with the generation of social media, the generation of the internet has completely transcended the way the sport is at the moment. And you get 
these transitional fights that seem to happen. Floyd Mayweather, Conor McGregor, the biggest one so far. But now, now you're seeing obviously the emergence of the uh, the YouTubers that coming along. The right, the, the, the right. two Paul brothers, obviously making a name for themselves in the sport because they've already got this this fan base already solidified and. What what do you think about you know these types of crossovers that that come over you know if you was a ring announcer and you be you're being paid to do this job and you're thinking this is a guy that comes over uh, do you have any sort of personal thoughts on on stuff like that or is it just you know when you're there to do a job you're there to do it and it, it doesn't really make a difference to you as to whether it's a YouTuber versus a phenomenal boxer or whether it's yeah. uh, just just a guy that's come over from MMA and wants to try his hand at the sport. Yeah, I, I really don't think that there's anything wrong with it. Uh, of course, we want to see, you know, the greatest fighters fighting each other. And, and sometimes when you get these these people involved in the sport from other forms of entertainment, you question why they're there, why they're involved in the sport. I think as long as they don't disrespect the sport and they go in there and they're in there to fight professionally and not do anything that's going to disrespect the rules or the way the sport operates. I don't really have a problem with it. I mean, remember I come from the world of professional wrestling. So, you know, I'm all about entertainment and what's going to intrigue boxing fans to tune in. And I would have no problem announcing any of uh, the fights with people who come and get involved in the sport from other forms of entertainment as long as they they take it serious and they don't disrespect the sport or disrespect other fighters, uh, and you know, and so forth, that I, I think it's I think it's great as long as you know boxing needs as many ways to get people to watch it, and it's going if it's going to bring in fight fans that aren't typically going to tune into boxing. Yeah, I think it, I think it's great because they're going to get exposed to other fighters, and maybe they'll gain an interest to watch boxing on a regular basis. Uh, what do you think about all the emergence of some of the old-time fighters coming back and having these exhibitions? Obviously, we've seen Mike Tyson, Roy Jones Jr. Uh, now we're, we're looking at potential of uh, Mike Tyson and Lennox Lewis. That's being spoke about quite vehemently at the moment. Again, it's all talk. It's all social media hype. Some of these things might not come to fruition. But in terms of someone who's also a fight fan like yourself... What do you what do you think about these events happening? Do you think it's a again is it is it a good thing as long as it's done within a, a decent remit or do you think these guys these legends of the sport should just 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 stay retired? Well, yeah, that's an interesting one because these are legitimate, you know, fighters who have fought at the highest level, and if anybody wants to come back and be involved in a sport, they they certainly should have that opportunity. But you never want to see someone go too far past their prime and perhaps injure themselves. And, you know, you, you would hate to see anyone coming back and, you know, have any type of issues physically from that. I think if, if they're exhibition fights and they're, they're closely regulated, I don't think that's as bad as if they're actually trying to get in there with the top fighters of today, where that would be much more dangerous um, but again, it's something that a lot of people are going to tune in to see. Um, and I think just as long as they do it safely, I don't really think that there's, you know, but I, I really don't like to see that. I think we all want to always remember fighters at their peak 
and at at their prime. So it kind of takes away a little bit of that when you see them not in the greatest shape and a lot slower and so forth. But, uh, you know, let's face it, you know, there's a lot of money out there to be made. And these guys, uh, you know, even though some of them are retired, they, they may still need another paycheck to, to live comfortably. So if it's an opportunity for them to make money off a sport that they dedicated their life to, as long as it's done safely, I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. How long do you see yourself doing this for now? Well, I turn uh, 48 years old next month, and I have no plans of retiring. I would like to do it as long as I possibly can. Uh, it's, you know, as I said earlier, it's a passion. Uh, I don't look at it as a job. Um, but as long as I can get on an airplane, as long as I can get in there and do my job, uh, I, I don't have any plans of retiring. And I think that's a true way of knowing whether someone loves their job or not. If they say, hey, I want to do this the rest of my life, I don't ever want to retire. I mean, look at Michael Buffer. You know, he's in his you know mid to late 70s. Yeah. Jimmy Lennon Jr., he's, you know, uh, I don't know how old he is, but he's been doing it for, you know, quite a few years. So as long as you can do the job, and uh, I really, you know, God willing, I can do this for another 30 years. Well, you know what? It's been an absolute pleasure to to have you on. And I'm going to put you right on the spot one more, just one more time for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and we've, we've spoken about you. We've spoken about your life. And people, I think, who listen to this podcast predominantly, there's a lot of US listeners, there's a lot of UK listeners. They are more, they'll more than likely know who you are. And it'll have been good to, to have heard from you. But the final thing, I think, the only thing we haven't heard from you is your ring announcing voice. So I think as a Uh-oh. as a bit as a bit of a signature, as a bit of a sign off for this episode, could you sign could you sign off this episode in your professional ring announcing voice? Well, ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to the BTR Boxing Podcast Network. It has been my absolute honor to be a guest and share with you my life story. I appreciate your interest, Sean, of having me. And as I say inside the ring, and now, ladies and gentlemen, the time has arrived. Thomas, you know what? It's been an absolute pleasure. We absolutely love you. We love seeing you over in the UK. Thank you so, so much for coming on this episode today. And if anybody wants to follow your journey, continue to see what you're up to, where can they follow you? Well, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter, Thomas Triber, at Thomas Triber. Uh, Instagram, Thomas Triber. Facebook, Thomas Triber. Uh, so I'm not too hard to find and... I uh, always love hearing from the fight fans and uh, give me a follow. And uh, I try to keep it as interesting as I can and share with you my travels and, and the things that I'm involved with. Thomas, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the episode today. Sean, thank you very much for having me. It's been my honor. Thank you. Podcast Network. 
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.